episode 148. Does it really matter if the pharma industry is or is not trustworthy? Today, I speak with Dr. Jennifer Miller, who is the founder of Bioethics International and the creator of the Good Pharma Scorecard. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It seems as though pharma has a reputation for putting profits over patients. I know, you're floored by this newsflash. So let's move on to the more interesting question. Why does this matter? Why does it matter to the pharma industry itself, which has been doing just fine, thank you very much. And why does it matter to patients, providers, and payers, or anyone else who's interested in improving patient outcomes? Today, I speak with Dr. Jennifer Miller, who is the founder of Bioethics International and the creator of the Good Pharma Scorecard. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Jennifer. Thank you, Stacey. It's great to be here. Let me ask you this question. How much does the American public distrust pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, it's a good question. It turns out a lot. Only 10% of the U.S. population trusts pharmaceutical companies are honest and ethical. 90% think they put profits before people. And do you see that transpiring from your vantage point? It's interesting. The statistics have been getting worse and worse. So if you want to back up 10 years or so or 20 years, the pharmaceutical industry was one of the most admired sectors in the world. So for example, in 1997, about 20 years ago, almost 80% of the U.S. population thought pharmaceutical companies were honest and ethical. They enjoyed a really high level of confidence. By 2004, that had plummeted to 44%. 2013, it was down to 12%. And I thought the numbers couldn't get any worse. And then this year, they went down to 10%. So they're ranked below Wall Street in terms of their perceived honesty and ethics. It's really quite shocking. What do you think that the pharma industry is doing to warrant such a dramatic plummet? There haven't been good empirical studies looking at exactly what is driving the distrust. And I actually posit to, to theorize that every decade, the main driver changes, like the exact issue that's exasperating the distrust. So right now it's there's a lot of distrust because of the high drug prices. But, you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of distrust because of marketing practices, the perception that pharmaceutical companies were paying doctors to prescribe their drugs in a way that the doctor was following the money trail rather than doing what was best for the patient. And then there's been all, the, all sorts of concerns. But if you wanted to summarize the concerns in one sort of tagline, it's really that concern that pharmaceutical companies are putting profits before people. And then the manifestations sort of change every every few years. Why does this matter? Are there larger reasons outside of the pharmaceutical companies themselves? Yeah, I think it's an insightful question, right? So who cares if, if people don't trust the pharmaceutical industry? You know, because maybe it's not trustworthy. <laughs> so maybe, maybe they shouldn't be trusted. And actually, this is the one of the first questions I started addressing when I looked at these statistics, you know, 90% of the people don't trust pharmaceutical companies, but then 
50% of us are, have taken a prescription drug within the last 30 days, right? So we take, a, we use all of their products, but we don't trust them. And I started to say, does it matter? What happens when an industry loses its social license to operate or its trust bubble bursts? And there are a lot of theories about some of the consequences. So for example, there's some evidence that patients will hesitate to take their drugs when they don't trust the industry. So you have adherence problems. Doctors might hesitate to prescribe drugs, particularly new products. There's this one doctor who routinely teaches his residents, so the, the up-and-coming doctors, never be the first or the last to prescribe a drug because there's this inherent distrust of the sector right now. People won't sign up for clinical trials, right? So if you want to know how we innovate new cures and therapies, how we develop new drugs, it's because we test them on humans. And if people don't sign up for these clinical trials, it's really hard to, to move innovation forward. Um, and then you can get reactive regulations and lots of things that could potentially impact patient and population health negatively. So it's worth taking a look into what's driving the distrust and how to build a more trustworthy system, right? You don't want to just improve trust in the sector. You want a trustworthy sector. And the reason I distinguish between trust and trustworthiness is that you can trust a used car salesman who sells you a lemon of a car, right? And we don't want that. We want to be able to trust appropriately trust the industry because they merit it. And so a lot of the work I do now is developing ethics standards or standards for patient centricity that we can reasonably ask of pharmaceutical companies and then benchmark their performance against those standards so that we can signal where there are credible and trustworthy practices and where there are areas of reform needed. Which I definitely want to get into, but one of the things that just occurred to me while you were talking, do you think that the vaccine hullabaloo might have been mitigated had pharma more trust or trustworthiness within the marketplace? It's hard to answer that. There have certainly been several experts that have linked low levels of trust in the industry and healthcare innovation sector with um, adherence to taking medicines and, and adhering to vaccine schedules. I'd also say, and this is a hypothesis, again, we need so much better evidence around here that some of the distrust is also driving DIY medicine, <laughs> you know, so growth in homeopathic, more natural alternatives to medicines that have been produced by markets. It's so odd that people would trust homeopathy, which has very little, if any, evidence <laughs> to support it, as far as I know, instead of pharma. It seems like an odd choice. Well, when you consider the massive amounts of distrust in the sector, it sort of makes sense, right? In any sector, when distrust is too high, there's a withdrawal from the sector. So even in politics, right, you never want to think about the pharmaceutical industry in isolation, right? It's part of an entire ecosystem of what's going on right now in the world. And in the United States in general, we tend to not trust big things, big institutions. We're not trusting the government. We don't think that Politicians are acting in our best interest, right? We think that they're serving private interests, pharmaceutical companies, um, lots of institutions. But notwithstanding the decline in trust for large institutions in general, the pharmaceutical industry is facing a particularly acute decline in trust. So it's particularly distrusted. Let's get back to what you were saying before, that there's this difference between trust and trustworthiness. And I know that we touched on some reasons 
for distrust. But I also know that you've spent a lot of time mapping the causes of distrust. Do you want to kind of dive in? I think you've got five distrustworthy categories. I'm not sure what you call them. Yeah, an, an ethics chain. I'm trying to to create the world's first ethics chain for pharmaceutical companies. You know, we often think about value chains and supply chains. And I think we need to think about ethics chains, like what's important for the industry to do in order to, to advance patient population health. So a lot of ethicists and experts spend a lot of time criticizing the industry. And so I did, of course, spend a, a good amount of time understanding, you know, what are the concerns people have about companies. But I I really want to understand the concerns in order to move towards the solutions, right? And so I'm going to tell you the five key concerns, and then let's try and talk about like the hopeful piece about what we can do about it. Awesome. <laughs> One way to think about what's driving the distrust or the key ethics concerns that stakeholders have about the pharmaceutical industry is as them falling into five categories, as you mentioned. Within those five categories of concerns are nested a myriad of specific concerns, but the five categories is a handy, it's a handy way of, of remembering the, the major issues. And so these five issues occur between the time that a scientist has an idea about a new drug or a new cure or a new therapy, and patients can access that drug. So the first category of concerns is around how a clinical trial is designed. So when you have an idea about a new therapy, the first thing you need to do is you need, you need to test it to make sure it is safe and effective for the indication that you're interested in treating. And so when you run that that test in humans, it's called a clinical trial, as opposed to an animal study or a petri dish study, an in vitro study. So the main concern around clinical trials is twofold. One, that they can be biased, that they're not producing, and, and secondly, that they're not producing generalizable data, meaning that the test is not yielding the information that doctors need to know to write the right prescriptions for the right patients. So what do I mean? Most clinical trials for diseases and conditions are run on healthier, white, young males. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as you may have noticed, the U.S. population or the global population, it doesn't consist of only healthy, younger, white males. <laughs> and so the consequence of that is that we don't necessarily know how drugs work for everyone else in the world or everyone else in the U.S. And it's been shown, actually, that especially for women, the, the physiology is very different for certain medications. Do I have that right? That's right. By gender, by race, by age, uh, all these factors affect how can affect how a person metabolizes or reacts to a drug. So it's really important to have a generalizable sample of research subjects, meaning people who are enrolled in clinical trials, such that we know how drugs work for the majority of the population that has a particular disease, right? So that's the first bucket. We're really concerned about how clinical trials are designed. We're concerned about whether the information that's produced from the experiment really is helpful for doctors and patients, right? So that patients can get the right drug at the right time in the right way. The second type of concern is around, so let's imagine the clinical trial is designed with integrity. The second concern is around how it's actually conducted. Conservatively, 40 to 60% of clinical trials are done outside of the U.S. and increasingly in emerging economies. I think that that's an old study. I think the number is actually dramatically higher. You'd be hard-pressed to find a new drug that hasn't been tested outside of the United States and in an emerging economy. So there are good and bad things about this. The good parts are that we're democratizing science, right? We're trying to globalize the information so that it's not just, you know, the Western world who knows how drugs work for them, but everyone has access to um, knowing how drugs work for them. The problem is that the sample sizes in each country are very small. 
And so that's not really what's happening. And there are also a lot of exploitation concerns raised by the globalization of clinical trials. So, for example, one of the main ones is a concern that concern about the responsiveness of the clinical trial to the local population's needs. So what do I mean by responsiveness? I mean, there are questions about whether we're testing drugs for first world needs, like male pattern baldness and allergy medicine, on people who need some basic things like clean water and tuberculosis medicines. And so we want to make sure that the clinical trial is always responsive to the local population's needs. There are also concerns about the quality of informed consents that you might be getting if the clinical trial represents one of the only or main points of access to healthcare, right? So lots of concerns like that around exploitation. So we've talked about two categories of concerns. The third category of concern is around clinical trial transparency. So clinical trial transparency, here the concern is, or the question is, Do pharmaceutical companies and scientists communicate all of the information that they learned from the clinical trial, or is there some biased disclosure, meaning that they're only reporting some of the clinical trial results, mainly those that can make a drug look good, and that means safer and more effective than it really is? And why would they do that perhaps to sell more products for marketing reasonings? So I'm going to come back to that, but previous studies have shown that only about 50% of clinical trials have publicly available results, and those that are publicly available are twice as likely to be favorable results than negative results. So it distorts the medical literature. It is not a requirement of the FDA that you have to publicize all of the results. That's right. So there is a law that was passed in 2007 called FIDA that mandates disclosures for some clinical trial results. And I measured the scope of the law. No one had ever bothered to do that. And I published it in the BMJ Open in November of 2015. And what I found is that the law covers roughly 20% of clinical trials that are conducted to gain regulatory approval of a drug. So say there's a median of 20 trials that are done, 20 experiments in humans, about three of them are generally required to be disclosed under the law. And then you know, notwithstanding the narrowness of the law, there's there the it's not always complied with that law. <laughs> Compliance is variable. Clinical trial transparency, not so good. <laughs> not always. Some Already. companies it's consistently good. Some 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 need some work. The next category of concerns is around how drugs are marketed, which I'm not going to get into today because it could be a whole podcast on its own. And then finally, how accessible medicines and vaccines are. And this, of course, includes pricing, which is what we're all talking about today with Martin Shrelly's court case going on right now. But it's more than just high drug prices. There are a lot of other system issues like anti-competitive practices by pharmaceutical companies. So for example, there's a concern that pharmaceutical companies can pay generic companies to stay out of the market for a period of time so they can you know, protect their, their market and reduce competition. Or um, there's lobbying to practices and all these other things. But basically, these are the, the five areas of concerns that stakeholders have about healthcare innovation and pharmaceutical companies in particular, how clinical trials are designed, how they're actually conducted around the world, the transparency and data sharing practices of companies, how drugs are marketed, and ultimately the accessibility of any approved medicines and vaccines. Let's just talk about this whole idea for a sec, because as you were ticking through these five categories, the one thing that I couldn't help but think is that Obviously, these pharma companies are a 
for-profit business. They have shareholders on Wall Street. And everything that you listed could be considered smart business. If you're a middle manager in a pharmaceutical company and your goal is to get a product approved as fast as possible, you know, hit the hit the PDUFA date, you're probably not going to want to spread the clinical trial around because obviously that's going to slow things down or potentially raise issues. I mean, there's probably a reason why healthy white males have been selected as the clinical trial target. Or if I'm a middle manager and my raise or my performance review depends on how much drug I manage to sell this quarter, you know, very short-term kinds of goals, I could see that there is a massive entropy within a pharmaceutical organization or any large corporation to do exactly the things that are on this list, which ultimately cause distrust of the entire industry. Is this a, an inevitable tragedy of the commons? Because it kind of, you know, as I think about it, it almost has that feel to it. I think what you're describing is sort of short-termism. In the short term, this may make money, but I don't think most from, if you think about the high, maybe not the middle managers, but the top the tone at the top of the company. It's in the interest of the industry and the company in the long term not to let short-termism, right, short-term thinking dominate. Long-term thinking, so more sustainable, more consideration around the sustainability of the company and the industry. So the example you gave about middle managers of a marketing department wanting to put out the most positive information about a drug to sell products, the most products very quickly, let's say they do that in a way that they suppress information about the safety and efficacy of the drug. That will only work in the short term, right? In the era of big data and, and all of us who are scrutinizing the performance of companies and new drugs, it's not a sustainable business practice to think that way. And in fact, I think very few companies think solely in terms of profits. I think we usually talk about the triple bottom line, right? Which includes considerations about social impact and reputation. So while individual middle managers may, may be tempted to think in short-term ways, I think the ideally the board of directors, the, the C-level C suite needs to think more holistically, right, integrated across all departments and more long-term. Definitely sounds like there would need to be some incentive matching. If you incent short-term behavior and short-term results, then you're going to get short-term <laughs> behavior and short-term results. Well, that's exactly why I created the Good Pharma Scorecard. Part of it is an incentive alignment system, right? It's let's create some incentives for good people to do good things. Let's create some space where middle managers can do good things, where companies can get recognized for implementing best practices that might cost money in the short run, but pay off in larger, more sustainable ways in the long run. So the Good Pharma Scorecard is an index that ranks every new medicine and vaccine approved by the FDA annually, as well as every pharmaceutical company on their ethics performance. And so in order to create that scorecard, we create a set of standards that can address all those five key ethics concerns I mentioned. These are standards that can be reasonably asked of pharmaceutical companies, and then they can be measured against. And the theory is that what gets measured gets done. And high scores are able to get recognized and, in, and middle scores and low scores are able to be incentivized to improve their behaviors. The idea is that nobody wants to score poorly in the index. I started this um, scorecard many years ago 
We've only publicly launched on one of the five issues, clinical trial transparency and data sharing practices. And since starting the, the scorecard, I've seen the industry change a bit. Now there are actually departments being created that look just at clinical trial transparency and data sharing. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, there were many companies had no such departments, right? And so those departments, they look at these scores um, and they're incentivized to score well in the scorecard because otherwise the people above them are going to ask them what happened, right? Why why aren't we scoring as well as J&J and GSK, which scored number one in 2012, right? Why are we ranked 10th instead of, you know, one, two, or three? And so it's, it's, it's a good incentive alignment system. Where is the scorecard? Where does it live, the index? The pilot was published in BMJ Open in November of 2015. It lives in medical journals and it lives on our website, uh, www.bioethicsinternational.org. Cool. It, we don't just static publish it. We actually send all of the data and the scores to the pharmaceutical companies so that they understand how they're scoring. And then we get all of the companies together twice a year to talk about why the numbers look like they do. So what are some of the root causes of the best practices? You know, how did these companies score 100%? There are two of them that score 100% every year. And what are their best practices? How do they implement them? Let's share those practices with the lower scoring companies. And then what are the barriers to scoring better for some of the lower scoring companies? And that, and what we do is we're able to create a knowledge exchange platform so that all companies can improve and the industry in general can improve over time. And once the public starts to see the improvements in performance, right, through these performance signaling mechanisms, trust can appropriately grow with it. And I can see why, especially the higher performing companies would want to share their best practices with the lower performing ones, because I don't necessarily think that an average member of the public is going to distinguish between, oh, this brand is is manufactured by X company and they're trustworthy and this one's produced by that other company. And wow, they're not. Right. Yeah. I don't think that the average American or the average patient around the world necessarily knows who makes their products, right? Which company, but investors and regulators and a lot of other stakeholders do look at individual company performance. At that meeting that you were talking about, who tends to be represented? Like, you know, you said all of the companies send a, all the pharma manufacturers send somebody to the conversation. Like, what is the title of, of the person that goes? It varies by company and it's varied over the years. So J&J tends to send their chief medical officer or J&J doesn't send it. The chief medical officer comes, uh, Joanne Waldstriker. You know, a smaller company sends their CEO, and then others might send a subject matter expert along with their C-level executive, depending upon the topic that we're talking about. But very good and solid engagement from companies since November of 2009. Does the conversation tend to center around garnering trust or being trustworthy or some combination thereof? I try never to have the goal be solely garnering trust because, as I mentioned before, you can trust someone or an institution that's not worthy of trust, right? And so I try to stick to trustworthiness. What does trustworthiness mean? What are good practices that companies can implement in order to advance patient and population health to be patient-centered? What are the standards and how do we credibly measure when those standards have been implemented and signal to the public to improve trustworthiness? That makes sense. And it reminds me, I did read a, a book about this. It was something in the in a post-trust era. Basically, the point was that we're living in a post-trust era. 
And the idea that was well-researched is that it is actually a buying criteria. The, you know, one of the first things, the check, che- one of the first checkboxes that someone, a consumer ticks off in their mind before they write a check or swipe their credit card is, do I trust this company? So it might be the case that even very short-term thinkers might have more and more of an incentive to be trustworthy. Yeah, ethics and trustworthiness are critical to consumers right now. In the world of healthcare alone, 62% of the U.S. population thinks that ethics is just critical to reforming and solving most of our healthcare challenges. It's really interesting. This is a Harris poll and I'm citing for you, published in January 2017. The Harris poll says that ethics is the most important issue above quality, efficiency, collaboration, and transparency. So we're really, as a society, craving ethics, trustworthiness, and transparency right now. I interviewed Dr. Josh Luke on this podcast, and he said something very interesting. I'd, be, I'd love your take on it. He said that, that Generation Xers, the behavior which has gotten us to this place is so ingrained in the older generations that basically he's just waiting for us all to retire. Because he just said the future is with millennials, that the industry won't fundamentally change these kind of bad behavior um, and very profit motivated behavior isn't going to change until the millennials take over. You know, that actually sounds very optimistic as if you just wait a few years and everything will solve itself. (laughs) But I'm not sure that that's realistic because as millennials increasingly enter the workforce or already in the workforce, they enter into systems um, where, where there are certain ways that things are done, right? And so until they become leaders, they have to follow the rules and these systems will start to shape, can start to shape the millennials along the way. And they, and they, they may just start thinking that the way things are done now is the way things that should, should be done. So I'm not sure. For example, if you want to get a job in a company and you want to stay employed at that company, you need to follow the company culture. So if that statement's true, that the company culture is corrupting, yeah, is corrupting, then generally that will corrupt a person over time, right? It's, it's that if you put good apples in rotten barrels, eventually the good apples will, will rot over time. And so that I, the question is, how do you fix the barrels? And that's really what we do at Bioethics International is try to do system interventions to restore the health of the barrel. (laughs) So let's talk about these system interventions. You know, is there a particular stepwise approach that you follow? Yeah. First is mapping the concerns that people have about the pharmaceutical industry. And so that's that five categories of concerns ethics chain that I mentioned to you. Mm. The second is is measuring the prevalence of the of the concern, right? Because the problem could actually be an old issue that's been fixed. It could be an outlier issue, it could be a rogue company in another otherwise sound industry that's not doing things, doing bad things, or it could be a rogue employee in an otherwise good company. So we always measure perceived problems to see if they're current, genuine, and widespread. If the problem turns out to be current, genuine, and widespread, then we do two things. We develop standards that can be reasonably asked of companies to address the problems. And then we build them into the Good Pharma Scorecard, which is an index that evaluates and ranks every company and every new product approved by the FDA according to those standards. The rankings help show you where there are best practices, and they also show you where we have areas for reform. And they hopefully incentivize reform in those areas by low-scoring companies over time. So let's take a widespread and prevalent issue, or maybe Mm -hmm. maybe it's not. Well, 
it's definitely somewhat prevalent based on what I see in my daily life. The the Martin Shkreli business. Mm-hmm. So that's a great example because I think the trade association or some people said that that was just a hoodie issue, right? <laughs> they said it was just it was just Martin Shkreli, and then it was okay. It's just Martin Shkreli and Valiant. Okay, it's just Martin Shkreli, Valiant, and Mylan. <laughs> okay. Oh well, it turns out maybe it's more than that, right? And so that is actually generally a common evolution of the discussion of ethics issues. It was a it was a rogue employee in an otherwise good company. It was a rogue company in an otherwise sound industry. Um, that's why measuring is really important, right? So that we don't have to assume anything like that. We can just say, no, it's actually present in 60% of companies that, you know, and exactly talk about all the numbers and the empirical data about the problem. Based on any conversations that you have been a part of and might be able to share, what's a way forward for the pharma industry given incident Screlly? Like, what can they do? Set standards and then provide proof points that they're being met. So certain pharmaceutical companies are setting standards voluntarily around drug pricing. So Allergan, for example, has committed not to raising its drug prices more than double digits in a year. Several other companies, three or four of them have, have adopted similar guidelines. You know, those are pretty minimal guidelines. They're good starts. They're not panaceas because it's talking about raising the price. It's not talking about the, the price that the drug has at, at when it comes onto the market initially, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those are significant steps forward. The industry can come together, set standards, and then use the scorecard to show to evidence when they've been implemented. So if you were in a C-suite of a pharma company and, you know, once again, you've got the so-called vanity metrics that you really have to worry about, number of patients served, um, profit margin, you know, all of the things that drive profit motives, how would you start to connect the dots between thinking more, creating a trustworthy culture and helping to begin to soften throughout the ranks. I mean, this is a paradigm change. Based on the conversations that you've had and the research that you've done, is there any top tip or? I think the the tone at the top has to be absolutely committed to ethics and patient centricity. It needs to be a commitment that's not just written in a policy, but that's you know, that the C-suite and the board has adopted. Then, so once the tone at the top is set, which it is in certain companies, actually, then you need to think about how do we operationalize that tone into the culture. And the next step is often to start identifying problems and setting standards and policies that can be implemented. And then you want to benchmark, measure, audit, and make sure that those standards are getting implemented. And if they're not, you just find out the root causes of any problems so that you can fix them. Once you know the standards and you're doing the benchmarking, progress should follow pretty quickly. Basically, the same methodology that you guys are using, the mapping, measure the prevalence, find some standards. Yeah. They should I mean, use as well. It's a basic theory in ethics, like how do you have institutional integrity, right, rather than, rather than institutional corruption? And you and three elements that are critical are tone at the top has to be set towards integrity, and then the culture has to be set towards integrity, and then you have to have clear policies and procedures that outline what that means and how to get there. And then our part that we add is that you also need to measure it because what you measure gets done. What is it? The the Hawthorne effect? If you even look at it, you will change outcomes and behavior just simply by observing it. 
So Yeah, or talking about it. There's evidence that just by talking about how high drug prices are, changes happen. Once again, the website where the scorecard can be viewed. So if someone maybe works at a pharma company and would like to check out how well they're doing, where can they go again to check out their numbers? So they can come to our website, www.bioethicsinternational.org. And from there, you'll see a link to the Good Pharma Scorecard. And if I am a provider or a payer, how would you envision that I might use the scorecard? We need to talk to providers and payers to understand how they need to how they need to see this information so that they can act upon it. The reason I say this is that you know you can produce the best measurements and the best data, but if it's not salient for users, they're not going to use it. So right now, pharmaceutical companies and the media definitely use our scorecard, but we have to think of the interface for the other stakeholders. What I like to think about is how the car safety ratings. So when you they're embedded right in the choice architecture of the decision maker. So if you go to buy a car, the car safety rating label is on the window of the car in the showroom. It's right at the point of the decision. You know, should I buy this car? Here's the safety rating. And so each consumer needs a different window. And so far, we've only created the window for the pharmaceutical companies and the general public. And now we're starting to think about who else needs to see this information and in what ways do they need to see where and how and when so it's salient for them and their decision making. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Stacey. It's really nice to know about you and your work, too. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.